life, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Actually, I just need to grab my glove. If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. I have to tell you, I am a wholly inadequate person to be talking to you today about suffering because I've never suffered that much. Of course, I'm vulnerable to tragedy in the same way as everybody else. Illness, bereavement, accident, financial hardships, disappointments. And sometimes we glimpse God's grace through the endurance of people who suffer like this. But the suffering that Peter cites here, both Jesus' suffering and the suffering of the believers that he's writing to, is more systemic than that. Persecution, slavery. I've certainly never suffered state-sponsored violence, and I don't feel I'm at risk of suffering state-sponsored violence either. And as for what this passage says about slaves submitting to masters with all respect, even the harsh masters, I have no experience of slavery. I'm not aware of any of my ancestors being victims of slavery, neither am I aware of any history of slave ownership in my family. Although being a white Englishman, I'm more likely to have ancestors who were perpetrators of slavery than the victims who suffered through it. However, I'm definitely the beneficiary of a culture the British culture that became rich through slavery. And for me personally, the profits of slavery historically that went into the church where I was educated and the school that nurtured my Christian faith and educated me 30 years ago have benefited me in a way that uh, I feel ashamed of. So I don't feel that I should be giving you an exegesis of these verses today. And as it turns out, I wasn't meant to be. Some of the themes of 1 Peter are quite close to things that you read in the letters of the New Testament traditionally attributed to Paul, submitting to governing authorities, Romans 13. Wives, submit to your husbands, Ephesians 6. Thank you for not inviting me to talk about that. And slaves, obey your masters, in Ephesians 6. The horrors of slavery in the Western world are really recent just out of reach, but still really close. The African-American theologian Howard Thurman died in 1981. He was a significant voice in the late 20th century. And he wrote about his grandmother in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. I just want to read a few uh, paragraphs of how um, the Bible was used to oppress his family and the way that scripture, particularly these kinds of scriptures, can be abused. 
During much of my boyhood, I cared for my grandmother, who was born a slave and lived until the Civil War on a plantation near Madison, Florida. My regular chore was to do all of the reading for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. Two or three times a week, I read the Bible aloud to her. I was deeply impressed by the fact that she was most particular about the choice of scripture. For instance, I might read many of the more devotional Psalms, some of Isaiah, the Gospels again and again, but the Pauline epistles never, except at long intervals, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. My curiosity knew no bounds, but we did not question her about anything. When I was older and was half through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of summer vacation. With a feeling of great temerity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. What she told me, I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would not let a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year he used as a text, Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters, as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. The tragedy of scriptures like those Pauline passages and the, the verse that I've just read to you from 1 Peter is the way that they've been used by some of my ancestors, perhaps some of your ancestors, as one of the tools to suppress and manipulate even our brothers and sisters in Christ as slaves. It's hard for us to get our heads around. And when I've heard preachers brave enough to comment on this absolute travesty, one argument that I've heard growing up is, well, slavery in the Bible wasn't the same as Caribbean and American slavery in the 19th century. And this way of looking at it is certainly good in that we don't attempt to justify the crimes of slavery using the Bible. But it's, bas and it's basically trying to rationalize the Bible by saying that transatlantic slavery was a different category of evil to Roman slavery that was more benign and more like some kind of extended family. My unease with this exegesis is that I have the overwhelming feeling that Roman slavery was also wholly evil. If you want to listen on BBC iPlayer to Melvin Bragg's In Our Time series, he did one on Roman slavery. And it is truly horrendous with all the sexual abuse, physical abuse, murder with impunity that characterized British and American slavery too. While slavery was common in the ancient world before the Romans, it was the Romans who industrialized it and used it as a tool to strike absolute terror into the nations that they were hell-bent on colonizing and subjugating. Something like one-third of all people in the Roman Empire were slaves. The life expectancy of a Roman slave was just 17 years old. 
So as slaves swelled the ranks of the early church, people like runaway slave Onesimus in Paul's letter to Philemon, where Paul is uh, doing a very diplomatic job of basically begging for the life of Onesimus. Christianity would have been a very young faith. The Christian community was very young, especially if uh, it was made up of many slaves whose average age was uh, death was 17. In the Church of England, we're worried about the numbers of young people in church going down, but the early church was a youth movement. So what do we do with scriptures like this? How do we honour this as God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting? Maybe my honest answer is, I'm not 100% sure. But what I will say is this. Peter isn't writing from the perspective of a colonizing power or the post-colonial, or the position of a post-colonial power from which many of us might consciously or unconsciously come to this text in the Bible in the UK today. Explicitly, he's writing from the perspective of an indigenous Jewish man whose nation has been conquered, shattered, and abused. Peter is on the side of the oppressed here, and the people he is writing to are clearly being knocked about, or are in imminent danger of being knocked about. In chapter 1, which you presumably looked at a few weeks ago, he's writing to Gentile believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These Roman provinces map very closely onto modern-day Turkey. Some of these provinces have been knocked about by the Greeks and by the Romans. The Galatians, for example. Galatia's kind of in central Turkey. They were descended from the Celts. You'll notice that the word Galatia is kind of quite similar to Gaul. So they were Celts. The Celts of Gaul were experiencing something approaching a genocide at the hands of the Romans. And perhaps the same year that this letter was written, AD 60 or AD 61 or so, the Celtic queen, Queen Boudicca in Britain, is getting wiped out by the Romans. And the first thing that Peter tries to emphasize in this letter is this. You might have been knocked about. Your people might have been destroyed. But you have a new identity in God. Whatever you've suffered, whatever you've lost... Chapter 2, verse 9, you are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Peter knows the suffering and fears that these new Gentile Christian communities are going through. When he writes, honour the emperor, in verse 17, He's explicitly not asking the church to support the system, the Roman Empire. I'll tell you why I'm confident about that. It's because at the end of the letter, where he tells you where he's writing from, he tells you that he's writing from a place which is directly associated with the empire and the emperor. And he uses, frankly, quite a cheeky, well, I don't know what the right word is, cheeky, rude, He uses quite a rude phrase to describe it. Chapter 5, verse 13, Babylon. He's not not talking about Babylon in Iraq. This is code in early Christian, Christian language and probably Jewish too 
for the evil Roman Empire. You just have to pick up the book of Revelation to see exactly what they think about Babylon and uh, where it's unpacked, the whore of Babylon, drunk on the blood of the saints. It's not a polite phrase at all. Peter is holed up there with Paul's companions, Silas, who helps him to draft this letter, and Paul's helper, Mark. Paul is not mentioned. Maybe he's already been executed by Emperor Nero. This letter is not a patriotic call of support for Pax Romana. Honour the emperor. By saying that, he's not saying we love the Roman Empire. He's saying don't get yourself unnecessarily into trouble. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? Peter is not organising an armed insurrection here. And Jesus, in his ministry, as we know, explicitly didn't start a war. Jesus went to a Roman cross. And we're called to follow the way of Jesus. Peter's encouragement in the face of evil is not to roll over and accept that evil, but it's that evil is a reality in the world and we can't always escape it. And we know that when Christians suffer unjustly, there is an echo of the gospel of Jesus who suffered for us and for the whole world. And when that happens, then we're following in Jesus' steps. So I don't think that Peter's command to slaves in verse 18 is a universal directive. Any more than the verses, a few verses on, a binding commitment for Christian women, you've probably gone through this bit already, not to wear gold and jewellery or to get their hair done. Do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. If you look at paintings of the rich 18th and 19th century slave-owning families, whilst they might have been keen on the uh, verses, slaves obey your masters, they obviously weren't paying any attention to the verse about not wearing jewellery and getting your hair done. And... So I'm probably digressing a little bit here by, by looking at that. But so I was listening actually recently to a, a podcast about Agrippina, who was the mother of Emperor Nero. So very much a Roman uh, aristocratic lady from this period. And uh, I was interested um, in one thing that they said on this podcast, because it kind of linked back into uh, to one Peter, Peter. They mentioned that Romans believed that women had two psychological flaws. First... The Romans believed that uh, women were inherently cruel, and that was one of the reasons why they uh, didn't want to give women power. Seems kind of quite ironic, since actually the men of the Roman Empire were exceptionally cruel. And the second uh, psychological flaw that the Romans thought that women had was that they were patho pathogenically attracted to shiny things and to gold. <laughs> so I don't think for a minute that Peter agreed with those stereotypes. But stereotypes are powerful things in our cultures. And those stereotypes did infect the culture into which Peter was speaking. And particularly insecure people tend to latch onto trends and stereotypes, particularly young people. I'm a student. I must have to drink a lot. 
I'm an Anglican, I like short sermons. Whatever it is, we have these kind of stereotypes and sometimes we play up to them. And I think that what Paul was saying there was not a, an all-time directive, don't wear jewellery or uh, get your hair done. I think he was saying, be yourselves. Don't play to the stereotypes. You're different. You're more than that. That's not, your, that's not where your value lies. That's not your identity. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. That's your identity. Love, the family of believers. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. When the recipients of this letter were experiencing unimaginable hopelessness and suffering that they had no control over, this could be a word from Peter of comfort to them, in which they identify with the suffering footsteps of Jesus, their brother, who walked the cross whilst experiencing the harshest treatment. You are not alone. Jesus had been there before, and his sprinkled blood made a way for you to join God's family to be born again. Alternatively, slaves accept the authority of your masters with all deference can be a word of desolate hopelessness if it's given by a slave master to a slave or an abuser to an abuse victim. In 1831 in Jamaica, when black Baptist minister Samuel Sharp led a strike which turned into a slave uprising, which, although it was viciously put down by the British Army, was a cry that was heard in Parliament in Westminster, and it hastened the abolition of slavery. When the faithful black Baptist minister Samuel Sharp led that uprising, I don't think he was violating 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 in any way, any more than a woman who puts on her best earrings to go to church. A few years ago, I became interested in the case of Pakistani Christian Asya Bibi. And by a series of divine coincidences and with the help of the Muslim community in Birmingham, I managed actually to raise her case directly with the Prime Minister, David Cameron, at the time. That's an, another story. But in 2009, she'd had an argument with her Muslim neighbours over something trivial. Whilst out fruit picking, she took a drink from a metal bowl at a well. A neighbour got upset because, as a Christian, Asya was considered to be lower caste than them, and they didn't want to drink from the same utensil. Asya gave a robust defense of her Christian faith, unfavorably comparing Jesus, so Muhammad, to Jesus. An argument ensued, which resulted in a mob taking her, presumably, to the local police station, her being reported, and eventually she was sentenced to death by hanging for the crime of blasphemy. The persecution which followed her arrest was intense, both for the Christian community in Pakistan and for some exceptionally brave Muslim politicians and others who stood up for her. The first of these was the Muslim governor of the Punjab province, Salman Tasir. 
he and his wife would regularly visit Asya in prison, who, who was being held in solitary confinement for a period which ended up lasting years until their visits were barred by the judge. And publicly calling for Asya to be pardoned, after publicly calling for Asya to be pardoned, he was assassinated by his own bodyguard in 2011. Apparently when Asya Bibi heard the news, she wept inconsolably from her cell. But another politician had her back, the only Christian MP in the Pakistani cabinet. In 2010, he was threatened with beheading for arguing her case. He was actually shot dead a couple of months after Tasir was assassinated. When the murderer of the Muslim leader Tasir was caught and sentenced to death for that murder, Tasir's 28-year-old son was kidnapped by fundamentalists and held for five years. And the murderer had a new mosque built and named after him. And when he was executed in 2016, 25,000 protesters came out onto the streets of Lahore in support of the murderer. As the chaos ensued, on Easter Day 2016, Christians were targeted. A suicide bomb at a fairground killed over 70 people and left 300 others injured, a huge proportion of which were children. Asya Bibi was finally acquitted in October 2018. And when she was, there were legal restrictions preventing her from leaving the country. Clearly, if she'd stayed, she wouldn't have survived very long. But she did eventually leave the country and she now lives with her family in Canada. And incredibly, Salman Tassir's son, who was kidnapped for a period of five years and presumably is still a Muslim, is an anti-blasphemy law campaigner in Pakistan today. I know nothing of this kind of suffering or bravery. And as much as it shouldn't have happened, it does witness in a very real way to the suffering of Jesus. But obviously none of us would say, aren't the blasphemy laws great because they witness to the suffering of Jesus who was also accused of blasphemy. We'd all want to say, get rid of those laws. Just as the passages like 1 Peter 2 verse 18 should never be used to excuse or minimize the crime of slavery. Jesus is the crucified Lord. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus is the crucified Lord who suffered for us. The reading that I gave you from chapter 2, 17 to 22 is hard because it talks about suffering. And like Peter, we don't want Jesus to be the suffering Lord. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely 
human concerns. That's where Peter had come from. We need to sit with the suffering of Jesus. It's part of the gospel. When in the past I've planned the Good Friday Walk of Witness um, with uh, yourselves and with Alton Friary, sometimes, I, I love Tim, by the way, and I'm going to just talk about that in a minute, but sometimes there's been a tiny bit of friction between the three churches because the Anglicans and the Catholics do want to sit with this time of suffering, the suffering and death of Jesus. And we're happy to sit there and we want to just take in that part of the gospel. Whereas Tim was very concerned not to leave us with the death of Jesus. We must tell them about the resurrection. And our reaction will be, of course, but we're doing that on Sunday. We're not doing it on Good Friday. We can't rush this. We don't want to rush to the last page. And we would normally find a compromise, but what if people don't come back on Sunday? We don't want to leave them here. But um, the suffering Lord Jesus is an important part of the gospel. Jesus is the crucified, risen Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into, living, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Jesus is the suffering Lord. He's the crucified Lord. He's also the risen Lord. Jesus is the crucified, risen and ascended Lord. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Suffering, resurrection, ascension, they're all there in 1 Peter. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps.